This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 5th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, the 5th of November. Coming up on today's programme, Stephanie Bolzan, UK and Ireland correspondent for Develt, will be here to peruse the Saturday papers. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be bringing us his sideways take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar and that it will forthwith be banished, which will make this a difficult year for bounty hunters. And a bit later on, our Lisbon correspondent Guy Lutz will be telling us all about Portugal's Festa Criola. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, here's the news. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has publicly approved the evacuation of citizens from parts of Russian-occupied Kherson in southern Ukraine. Kyiv has accused Russia of forcibly deporting Ukrainian civilians, which is considered a war crime. Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, has blamed activist groups pressurising advertisers for a sharp fall in the social media group's revenue. The billionaire, who also owns the car company Tesla, has announced a raft of job cuts in a bid to save money. And some Spanish airports, including Barcelona and Ibiza, were forced to briefly close yesterday as remnants of a Chinese rocket re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. However, the 23-tonne craft eventually landed in the south-central Pacific Ocean. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now I'm joined in the studio by Stephanie Balzan, who's UK and Ireland correspondent for Develt. Good morning to you, Stephanie. Good morning. Um, I thought we'd start just picking up on the off the back of that news story, and this, of course, is what's going on in Ukraine. At least 70,000 people are reported to have already been moved um, from Kherson. It's the only major city gained by Moscow since its troops invaded in February. Uh, and, of course, that would be a war crime if, if, if Putin is, is forcibly moving these people into Russia. Yeah, and it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, he has already moved uh, allegedly tens of thousands of people out of eastern Ukraine into Russia, among them many, many children. So uh, it's, it's well, of course, we have to wait for judicial reports and, and, and courts and lawyers and, and uh, cr- criminal experts looking into this. But uh, yeah, and the, the situation in, in the south of Ukraine um, is presented, at least by the Ukrainian, as a crucial moment. And we currently have a reporter there. That's also why I chose the story, because he's written a very indie welt my paper, um, a very good um, insight in what's going on uh, on the ground. And Kherson, as you said, um, was the first city the Russians actually took already on the 1st of March, so only a week after um, the war Putin's war in Ukraine started, and um, it's a it's a very old town. It's quite an it's not really affluent, but it's an important town um, because of the agriculture, but mainly because it's um, 
It's a bridging point towards Odessa as well. And it also has bridges over the Dnieper, the big river. And so strategically, it's an important place for Russia to keep because if Ukrainians can um, seize control again, the Russia will lose the ability to go from the eastern side of the Dnieper into the western side and towards um, Odessa. Mm, I mean, it, as you say, very strategically important and, and, and psychologically important for everybody. I mean, this is, as you say, being billed as, as the big battle. This may be the decider in the war. Yes, and it's, it's also very interesting. I've been for, actually now since the beginning of the war, I've been in regular contact with someone in, in Kherson and um, he's been telling me over the months how um, carefully the Russians actually try to convince um, people, Ukrainian people in Kherson to accept the Russian rule. They have been, well, giving them money. There were lots of billboards. There's a real propaganda thing going on in Kherson. Older people, of course, then also agreed to um, take the money simply because the situation is getting more and more dire. But there's a lot of opposition. And then two weeks ago, I think it was, or three weeks, there was this referendum in um, in quotation marks uh, where allegedly the majority uh, um, voted to, to be Russian. But the uh, resistance is still very strong, the civilian resistance. Of course, it's very dangerous to be there. Um, and now um, the Ukrainians who are still in Kherson are hoping that the, their army makes the progress they do. But it's a very very dangerous situation. It's open field. There are lots of mines, hundreds and thousands of mines that the Russians have put in the ground um, between the Ukrainian front and what is Kherson. So, yeah, it's... uh it's, it's a crucial moment, but it's also very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, a crucial time coming up for the United States as well, because on Tuesday, the country votes in the midterms. Uh, and uh, there's one man in particular who's been hinting very strongly uh, that he will be running for president in 2024. Tell us all about Mr. Trump. Well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Donald Trump um, uh, on, on Friday was at a campaign event in, in, in Iowa. Oh, no, sorry, it was on Thursday night. And he said, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not really surprising, but I think at the end of the day, it's more difficult than Trump wants it to to look like because first of all as we know he has these legal cases going on in New York and also he has a very strong contender which is uh, Ron DeSantis the um governor of, of Florida and there are some well, not very nice remarks by Donald Trump about Ron DeSantis who actually they are friends they are in the same party and um, uh, Trump in the beginning very much uh, or Ron DeSantis is a protege of uh, Donald Trump but he sees him now as a contender so this is going to be very interesting in the upcoming primaries for 2024. I mean, it is interesting looking at his timing as well, because this is not the first time he's teased that he might stand and he keeps not quite announcing it. I know we've got uh, Joe Biden's 80th birthday coming up and all sorts of, there are all these things, or the midterms, he could announce at any point, which would derail other stuff that's going on in America. Yes, of course, but he is going to wait for the uh, for the midterms on, on Tuesday and how they are going to pan out. And also, um, I mean, talking about Joe Biden turning 80, if Trump runs again. He's also 78. So looking at the most powerful 
well, Octogenary. arguably most important <laughs> uh, country in the world. You have two uh, almost over 80 men uh, competing for uh, <laughs> controlling this country. And if you look at Juan de Santis, he's half the age. He's 44. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, one date that's been predicted is November the 14th. They say that's the day when he might uh, actually confirm that, that he's running. But as you say, all of these legal problems, it's very hard to see how he could be fighting both an election and to stay out of jail. Yeah, but um, interestingly, um, the Department of Justice is now considering appointing a special counsel to oversee the federal investigations related to the former president. That's according to CNN. So you can see how how delicate the situation is, how actually the institutions in the United States are trying to make sure that their own legal process is not being undermined by um, Donald Trump's propaganda. I mean, I'm, I'm very pessimistic. I think even if you have an independent uh, counselor to, to monitor all the legal proceedings against Trump, I think his, his media and propaganda power is so big that at least his supporters will still think this is a fraud, another fraud after the, the quotation mark fraud election in, in 2020. Mm, I mean, because he can completely politicise the case, can't he, and say it's a witch hunt. And, well, as indeed he is saying. Uh, now, for the first time, we have heard from Britain's new Prime Minister, his big first interview, did a sit-down with the with the Times. This is, of course, uh, Rishi Sunak. Big picture of him here with his ever-present can of Coke. It seems to be a very <laughs> deliberate product placement. <laughs> um, he's, uh, I mean, he comes across as an ordinary nice bloke. Albeit very rich. Well, if you have, uh, what is it, 750 million, allegedly <laughs> 750 million pounds on your uh, account um, and you are married to the daughter of one of the richest men in India, you're not quite your average guy. But this is, I think, I mean, I've been observing Rishi Sunak for a very long time because he was always seen as someone who potentially would be the successor of Boris Johnson. And he has been very carefully forming his own uh, image. He has a very, very good Instagram account. There are lots of nice pictures of his. He's got a team around him who made sure that the right messages come out, um, that he's seen with a... It's really worth looking at his Instagram account, um, which kind of people he is meeting. So he comes over, as you say, as your ordinary nice guy. But of course, he's now facing a big day, which is 17th of November, which is the budget. And this is a crucial moment for the United Kingdom, really, because they have to prove that they can balance the books again and that the markets, as you say, um, do trust the United Kingdom again. Yeah. I, I tell you why this, this piece kind of grates on me slightly. It starts saying that Rishi Sunak was in TGI Fridays in Teesside eating ribs with his daughters when Liz Truss announced that she was resigning. The former Chancellor, who'd been settling in as a backbench MP, had to abandon plans to go bowling and make a decision. Did he want another run at being Prime Minister? Come on, had he not thought about this before? <laughs> it then goes on to say, oh, he had to go and call his wife. Really? I think you could finish your meal. This is something that had been in the air for a long time. It's all just a little bit too contrived. And the piece goes on to sort of talk about how, how lovely it is that he and his daughters and uh, live next door to, to Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, who also who has three children. They've both got Labradors and isn't it lovely? And he says, here is a man, I mean, given that he's now trying to rescue the situation, but here is a man in charge of a government that has made all of us so much poorer. People are going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their jobs. Many people are in an absolute fuel poverty. And that could have been avoided under the watch of the Conservatives. Can he reverse it? 
He will certainly not be able to reverse it. And I find it interesting that uh, one of the first quotes from this interview is that he insists, and he says it several times, we, we can the state cannot fix every problem. So there kicks in the very core principle of the uh, Tory party of the conservatives, the British conservatives, which is the state is not there for you. The benign state will always sort out everything. So um, he's that is, I think, an appeal to his own backbenchers and also to his party. But then the truth is they have to prepare to announce cuts, no, sorry, 50 billion of tax rises. So not only that there will be severe cuts, there will also rise taxes. And as we know, the Bank of England has um, risen the interest rate and they have said um, Britain is clearly going into a recession and that unemployment might even double, I think, until 2025. So it's a, it's a very dire situation. Um, And he has only bad choices to make. Now, he will say, we have to make these choices because otherwise it's only getting worse because we are paying so much money for our debt, which is which we saw after the mini-budget yeah. by Liz Truss. I mean, uh, the, the, the interviewer here says, does, does Sunak accept that the government's actions exacerbated the, these economic problems? He says, I absolutely recognise the anxiety that people have about mortgages. It's one of the biggest bills people have. Uh, I mean, that, that's not saying mea culpa, which really he ought to be doing. No, of course, he, he doesn't say that, but he's now the prime minister and he needs to clearly distinguish himself from, from, from uh, his predecessor list trust. But then again, as you say, and this comes, I think this is also one of the other topics in the, uh, in the interview is about the problem of illegal migrants. The Tories have been in power for 12 years. So um, it's just going on and on. You feel like you're in a, in a, going in a circle. The same problems pop up time and again, uh, especially when it comes to the migration question. I mean, to be fair, if you look on the continent, All countries are in dire situation. All countries have too much debt. Um, inflation in the eurozone is almost 11%. So it's not like the Tories are the only ones who are who have caused and are, um, <laughs> have to manage a terrible situation, which is also partly their own fault. But to be fair to them, because of the uh, the, the war in Russia in, in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine, um, and the energy prices exploding. It's tough for any government currently. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's talk now about somebody who really does seem like a genuinely nice bloke. And you should know <laughs> because you've met him. Uh, this is Gareth Southgate, who is, of course, a manager of the England football team. Yeah, he's. Uh, um, we did an interview with him um, early October. By the way, it was interesting. They said, do not come before 12.30. Not before 12.30. And we were thinking, why are we not allowed to go to St. George's Park? So it's to, just to explain, St. George's Park is the um, football centre of the... English Football Association. It's uh, in the middle of nowhere, somewhere between Birmingham and um, near Stoke-on-Trent in, in the Midlands. Um, 130 hectares. It was um, opened 10 years ago by Prince William. And the morning we were there, or just before we were there, Prince William was there. And th that was kind of interesting because um, he's the president of the Football Association. And he opened it 10 years ago. And when you come into this massive building, there's a wall on the left where they have all the successes of the English teams, not only men, but also under 17, under 19, especially the woman who won uh, the European Championship this year. And then the men, of course, who, who won, not won, but were in the final last year in the, in the Euros. Yes, fascinating. So you would have bumped into the into the future king. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately not. But we bumped into Gareth Southgate and he is generally a very nice person to talk to. He's very kind. He's very calm. 
He's always smiling. Of course, in Germany, he has quite a place because in 1996, in Wembley, he was the one who missed the crucial penalty. And then Germany scored and Germany went on into the final and won the European Championship. So, um, of course, I had to ask him about <laughs> it. And interestingly, he said this was horrendous, of course. Yeah, the very one penalty missed again. And, you know, the trauma of the English team of always <laughs> losing in penalties against Germany. Um, but he said, looking back, it was a blessing because he, he said for years and years he was booed on every pitch he played, but it hardened him and it made him think that life goes on and there are so much more important things. And he, he has this, this calmness, which I think his, his team, this very young team, appreciates because he's firm, he's calm and he has this kind of values which say, of course, first of all, you have to play football brilliantly mm. but there are also things outside the pitch and of course he's very outspoken about Qatar human rights he talked about how welcome gay players footballers are now which is also very controversial of course or that's controversial not but it's a delicate topic to talk about mm. as footballers so I, I was I was quite impressed by him so I mean how is he going to deal with it in Qatar the, the actual game of the sport aside but all of these human rights issues when he has been so outspoken and the country is, is as we know has draconian regulations about these things I think all the footballers and the managers and the footballers they will try to strike a balance because at the end of the day it is about football they are not politicians but uh, many of them um, have gone out there many of them have set things on the record then there is this kind of at least by European team initiative of wearing the so-called one love armband so Harry Kane is wearing it so the captains of several football teams I think Denmark Germany not sure about France, but definitely England will wear this armband, which is not only about homosexual players. Um, it's about one love is racism or against racism for diversity, um, equality of everyone. And that's, that is a symbol, but it's controversial. And of course, um, it's going to be interesting to see how the reaction will be by the Qatar authorities to, for example, supporters who go there and are openly living their normal life, which is which is uh, acceptable in the West. Yeah, I mean, I forget who it was who, who advised uh, people going to the World Cup to be less visibly gay. Yes. Yeah. Or for example, there was a warning by the uh, actually British uh, Foreign Affairs Committee chair, Alicia Kearns, an MP, the other day. She told supporters to take a second phone with them because the Qatari authorities will force you to download an app. And once you download that app, they will enter and access your um, mobile phone. I mean, this is extraordinary that this is happening in, in, in such a blaze of publicity and there doesn't seem to be more of a backlash against it. Well, I think, to be fair, there's a lot of a backlash. But the question the question at the end of the day is, why did you give it to Qatar in the first place? Mm, absolutely. Just just before you go, uh, Southgate, of course, every time there's a big ma match is, is very heavily featured in the media. He's been an absolute heartthrob here in Britain. Uh, his, he became very well known for wearing waistcoats. Uh, so I have to ask you, did you like him and was he wearing a waistcoat? He wasn't wearing a, a waistcoat. He was, unfortunately, he was wearing <laughs> a suit in a... Oh, wait, I have to I, I have to look up the photo. I'm not quite oh, sure yeah, what he was I wearing. Um, but um, I, 
I mean, he is just very kind. He's very easy to to deal with. He's, you know, sometimes you meet people and they make you being. No, I'm just looking. You know, he was wearing actually just a, a knitted jumper with a zip and a t-shirt and black trousers, so he looked very <laughs> average. Um, but he he makes you feel at ease. And sometimes you have interview. You have people you interview. They make you feel on the edge and you're really tense and you just think, oh God, hopefully this is over soon. Yeah. I would have spent several days with him. <laughs> That's lovely. Stephanie, thank you so much. That's Stephanie Volzan there. Uh, and uh, now we're going to join Andrew Muller for his madcap assessment on the week gone by. We learned this week what Russia is really fighting for in Ukraine and apologies to any long-suffering parents presently experiencing symptoms triggered by the music playing behind this bit. If it is any consolation, we learned that Russia is broadly on your side, and we learned this via a sensible, thoughtful, measured, and in no way completely unhinged statement from Russian MP Alexander Kinstein. Mr. Kinstein, we learned, is chair of the Duma Committee on Information Policy and Communications, and, we must be clear on this, not in any respect a paranoid halfwit. For we learned that Peppa Pig, cheerful, animated, porcine preschooler, is, in fact... The squadron leader of a psychological operations commando unit intent on turning your children gay. We turn now to some of Mr. Kinstein's logical, sober and not even slightly ridiculous statement as will be voiced by Monocle24's logical, sober and not even slightly ridiculous statement's desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Peppa Pig, seemingly a very well-known cartoon. In one episode, a polar bear is drawing a portrait of her family and says, I live with my mommy and my other mommy. LGBT is nowadays a tool of hybrid war. Thanks as always for taking the time, Fernando. We know you're busy with the hybrid war and whatnot. This, of course, was not the first time we had learned of the chilling and subversive subtexts of Peppa Pig. A couple of months back, Federico Moliconi Molliconi, culture spokesman of the Brothers of Italy, also invade against Peppa Pig's polar bear neighbours, solemnly, earnestly and not remotely idiotically declaring that we cannot accept this gender indoctrination. And his party are now running the country, which is heartwarming. But we should remember, of course, that Peppa Pig did have one staunch ally she could always count on among European conservatives. I was, well, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Who will speak for Peppa Pig now? Mm. I can't wait Interesting. to see That was a rhetorical question. We don't really care all that much. We also learned this week, and we think this just about works, of a mutiny on the bounty. Ship's company, I'm taking command of this ship. 
Mr. Fry, I'll have the keys to the arms chest. Not that kind. Indeed, we learned that this particular revolt was not against Lieutenant William Bly of the Royal Navy, later Governor of New South Wales, where he was eventually on the receiving end of another insurrection, but we digress, but against a chocolate-covered coconut confection. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research slash pre-Christmas attention-seeking, delete as applicable, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar, and that it will forthwith be banished from the celebration's mixed chocolate tubs traditionally brought to your yuletide lunch by relatives who did their Christmas shopping at the petrol station. Which will make this a difficult year for... Bounty Hunters. In British politics, meanwhile... No, don't. No, no, no. Please don't. Please don't. Don't hear it. Oh, God, Andrew, no. We learned of the next step in the glorious career of Matt Hancock, COVID-19-era Secretary of State for Health, one-time star of very arguably the least interesting sex scandal in British political history, now disregarded backbencher. We learned that tending to the concerns of his constituents in West Suffolk is not quite sufficient to fill his days, and that he has accordingly signed on for the next season of tedious reality programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. This will, of course, be a radically different milieu for anyone who has come up in British politics to explore, as one of those environments is a merciless bear pit whose wretched inhabitants are compelled to commit serial indignities until such time as a bored or irritated public votes to eject them, and the other is a game show. Champagne satire. We learned, however, that Hancock had reasons for embarking to the badlands of Australia, reasons far, far nobler than the 300 grand he is reported to be trousering for his participation. In a newspaper editorial, Hancock kicked off by declaring that he had not, quote, lost my marbles or had one too many drinks, a clarification traditionally vouchsafed by people who have lost their marbles or had one too many drinks. Hancock insisted that he was somehow doing it for democracy, as will now be read by Monocle24's entirely plausible justifications desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. Politicians like me must go where the people are, particularly those who are politically disengaged. We must wake up and embrace popular culture. Rather than looking down on reality TV, we should see it for what it is, a powerful tool to get our message heard by younger generations. While we will, at this time, rise above swinging at the powerful tool Freudian slip contained therein, we will not rise above relaying the somewhat equivocal reaction of the deputy chairman of Hancock's own local Conservative Party Association, Andy Drummond, which will also be read by Carlotta as she's sitting here anyway. I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. Quote me. (laughs) You can quote me on that. And indeed, we have. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much to Andrew Muller. And finally, we head to Lisbon, where the first edition of Festa Criola is drawing to a close. The four-day festival has taken over several locations in the Portuguese capital, and our correspondent in Lisbon, Gaia Lutz, has been taking it all in. 
Hello, my name is Dino Santiago. I'm a Cape Verdean descendant living in Lisbon and Lisboa Criola is one of my biggest dreams and now it's finally like getting up and lifting all of our multicultural culture in Lisbon. That's Gino de Santiago, who apart from being one of Portugal's most celebrated musicians, is also one of the founding fathers of Lisboa Criola, a Lisbon-based initiative that puts a spotlight on and celebrates the city's rich mix of cultures through a range of projects. From the Moors and the Jews in the Middle Ages to the colonial period which created ties with people from as far as South America, Africa and Asia, to the more recent waves of immigration from places such as Nepal, Pakistan and China, Lisbon has always been a global village. But while we might take these influences to be merely historical, Lisboa Criola wanted to show them as a living, breathing and defining part of Lisbon's contemporary culture. With that in mind, the team put on the first edition of Festa Criola, a four-day festival that celebrated the city's multiculturalism through literature, dance, music, food and more. Well, I believe that uh, Lisbon has always been multicultural for uh, centuries now. It's just that we are collectively gaining a different conscience and I think this is of course in the wake of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements around the world. That's Gisela Casimiro, a writer, performer and activist from Guiné-Bissau and the literature curator of the festival. I think the streets have always been like the the streets were our first canvas, so it's an open-air exhibition accessible to all of us. So I think that it's very important that uh, right now we are collectively trying to make change, but not only through effort, but also through celebration. And because there's no real celebration without a feast, Festa Criola also organized a special gastronomical tour through the flavors of Lisbon with food journalist and all-round food lover Inês Matos Andrade. I wanted to have, uh, of course, the, the connection with the former colonies in Portugal is very, very important. But there are also other Portuguese influences that probably people are not aware, for instance, uh, Malaysia. And um, they have a lot of uh, recipes that are inspired by Portuguese food because Portuguese people were there for a while and they kind of forced women to marry them. So women are an important medium to, to pass food and recipes through generations. And so I tried to choose some recipes that people are familiar with, like Kashupa from Cape Verde or Muamba from Angola. These people have this in their memory. But I also wanted to have different stuff, food that people are not aware that have history and uh, sometimes even the babinka, which is a dessert that people in Lisbon eat a lot and love it. Probably they know that the babinka has a conventional origin and uh, it has eggs and sugar, which is a base of a lot of Portuguese sweets, but it has the coconut milk and the spices uh, from India. So the same with the kingding. The kingding also is a conventional sweet, but with the coconut milk and the cocoa. And of course, the coconut is a typical Brazilian ingredient. And the name kingding, they believe it's African, which is also this mix of uh, traveling and everything. 
On the menu at Festa Criola were dishes that told stories, such as the Jumu soup from Haiti, a soup that was forbidden in the country while it was under the domain of the French Empire and is eaten to this day to celebrate the country's independence. There's also grog, a distilled drink made from sugarcane that's still planted by Cape Verdean communities in Talud, just a 20-minute drive from Lisbon's city center. And it's not just the foreign recipes. Inej tells that even Lisbon's most traditional dishes are also the result of this blend of influences. I think people need to understand that this idea of tradition can be quite sketchy because we have some, some recipes here like the codfish with chickpeas or the bitok, which is a steak with fries that you eat in Lisbon. And this was created by people from Galicia because you had a lot of people from Galicia open in Spain opening businesses in Lisbon. And some of our restaurant institutions like Ambrinos and Slardes Pesuntos, they were created by, by people from Galicia. So it is really difficult to define what is traditional or not. You have uh, even Francesinha from Porto was inspired by Croque Monsieur. And uh, if you go in the middle of, if you go to Algarve, the Cataplana has, of course, the Arabic influence. So it's really difficult to talk about tradition. We need to, I think people need to understand that we are a result of centuries of people coming here and introducing ingredients, even ingredients that now are indigenous from Portugal, they were brought by someone at some point. So I think we need to be more open and try to understand the people behind some recipe or the story behind the food that we're eating. And this, for me, it's a, food is a universal language. So I think it's a really good way of people to connect. That was Monocle's Lisbon correspondent, Kaya Lutz, reporting from Festa Criola. And if you'd like to find out more about what Portugal has to offer, then head to our website to order a copy of Portugal, the Monocle Handbook. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend, and don't forget to tune in to tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday with uh, Emma. That'll air at 9am at London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.